Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight on The Breakdown, we are very excited to welcome San Francisco's new district attorney-elect, Chesa Boudin. And Marisa, he's got quite the life story. He really does. I mean, it, it is not often that we go from the weather underground to che, Hugo Chavez's. Che in uh, South America. And, yeah, we're going to get to it all. Yeah, we will. But I think, you know, it's important to put this election in context, especially for our listeners outside of San Francisco. Um, Chase Boudin is basically the latest in a string of what I think a lot of people refer to as progressive prosecutors. We've seen this happen in Philadelphia and Chicago uh, in other cities. Um, and you know, in San Francisco, of course, this very deep blue place, it, it, it is seen as a bit of a rebuke of the establishment, I would say, Scott. Yeah, and we should say, too, just for context, uh, the uh, previous district attorney, George Gascon, suddenly resigned right before the election uh, and is going to go to L.A. and run for D.A. We can talk about that in a minute. But Chesa Boudin, uh, you know, despite or maybe because of his somewhat radical background and ideas about uh, eliminating bail and criminal justice reform generally, panicked, I think you could say, the establishment in San Francisco, including the mayor, uh, London Breed, who appointed one of the other candidates as interim DA, Gavin Newsom, uh, Kamala Harris, Dianne Feinstein, they all lined up about behind Susie Loftus, and Chesa Boudin won in spite of or maybe because of that. Yeah, and I mean, Susie Loftus is no sort of right-wing, tough-on-crime Republican. She no. is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, San Francisco born and raised, um, you know, very, I think, in line with a lot of what we've seen in San Francisco, which is a left-of-center Democrat. But again, you know, she had ties to Kamala Harris. Um, and, I, I, and I do think that it's important to note that this is sort of of, uh, that is what the debate is. It's it's whether or not you want someone like her who came from, the, you know, within the DA's office was a lifelong prosecutor or somebody in a way that wants to come in and kind of blow up the system. Well, and the fact that Chase Boudin uh, has never been a prosecutor. In fact, he's a deputy public defender in mm-hmm. San Francisco. So he's really switching teams. And I think that certainly the Police Officers Association, which spent like $650,000 in the final weeks of the campaign to, to upend him, uh, were... I don't know. Panic might be too strong, but they really, they just feel, I, yeah. I think panic might be, yeah. I think and the I think police, they, yeah. The that's police, fair. yeah. And I think that it is also they feel that perhaps they won't be able to work with him. Uh, and, you, you know. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's on him at this point because they're the ones who spent, you know, and had been very, very vocally critical. I think the other kind of interesting thing that is happening below the surface and not really out in the open is the 
not panic at all, but the concern by a lot of the people who have pushed more incremental criminal justice reforms, and you could put someone like Susie Loftus and Kamala Harris in that bucket, that someone like Chesa could sort of roll back some of the progress they've made. That there's a difference between the sort of incrementalism that we've seen in terms of what ballot, you know, has happened at the ballot box and in the state legislature, and what someone like Chesa might represent. And I think that that's going to be fascinating, especially going into 2020, when we do have at least two ballot measures. One would roll back the bail reform of last year. One would roll back some of those other criminal justice reforms that some of the people on the left who maybe in theory really support a lot of the ideas Chase is talking about are worried that he or other people that left of, you know, left of left (laughs) could go too far. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the mayor lost another election, which is, uh, you know, somewhat less important. But her candidate that she had appointed to the board of supervisors to replace her also lost to somebody Further to the left, Dean Preston, a tenant rights activist. So, I mean, London Breed now is facing uh, not only no majority at the Board of Supervisors, but she, you know, she could have a hard time getting four or five votes for things that she wants to do. So, I think this is really a, a rebuke of her in in many ways. But there was also a lot of energy. Just putting it on the positive side, there were a lot of people very excited, oh, yeah. young people especially, I think, about uh, Chase Boudin and what he represents. Uh, and, and so uh, he won. Uh, you know, not a huge landslide. By by ranked choice voting, he was clearly the consensus choice. Uh, and getting a lot of second and third place votes from some of the more conservative candidates in the race, was, which was a little surprising. Yeah. I mean, I think the things I'll be watching to see is like, what does it mean if he says we're not using money bail anymore? Um, he says that that is one of the first acts that you know, he'll undertake as DA um, and how does how do those relationships progress? But also what does like I was sort of saying, what does this new election mean for the broader conversation, not just in California, but nationally around criminal justice reform? And will um, you know, will there be a backlash or will voters continue to really embrace this type of very dramatic change. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we'll be talking with San Francisco DA-elect Chase Boudin. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we have San Francisco's new district attorney-elect, Chesa Boudin. Chesa, welcome to The Breakdown. So good to be here. Thank you, Marisa. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. So we want to talk a lot about your life and how how you came to this moment. But um, I think to start, you know, we understand that you were actually back east visiting your dad, who's in prison, um, when the election results came down last weekend. There was several days of counting, as often happens in San Francisco. Um, your dad's been in prison since you were in diapers for his role as the getaway driver in an armed robbery. We'll talk about that more in a second. But I just wonder what it was like finding out that you are going to be the city's next top prosecutor as you're visiting your dad in prison. It was uh, it was a lot. You know, I was visiting my dad on Friday and on Saturday, and we actually got the the news that it was final that we had won on the plane back to San Francisco. Okay. I was in the middle seat, uh, coach class. Uh, it was a little, little awkward to celebrate in that in, <laughs> in, in that position. I was with my my fiance, and so we had a little kind of private moment in in uh, in our seats. The person next to us was probably confused about what was going on. But big, big of you to take the middle seat. But <laughs> I, I try. It's the least I can do for He's her. Trying after, to get married. Yeah. I was going to say after the year she's put up with of, <laughs> of campaign life, and exactly. Um, but we went into the the visiting room on Saturday morning with a pretty good sense that we were going to win. We knew there was still counting happening, but we knew the remaining, I think, 15,000 or so votes were were provisional and conditional ballots. We had a very good sense those would favor us. We were already in the lead. Um, and so, um, you know, we had, we had that conversation with my dad uh, over vending machine coffee and um, potato chips. And um, it Is was- Is he happy? He's proud. I think he's, like so many parents would be in this situation, he's anxious about the stress and the pressures that this job will entail for me and for my fiance. Does um, he feel like it's a good fit for you? I mean, you're going to put people in prison. I am. And I think my dad appreciates a few things. One, that you know, having lived in prison for now 38 years, he appreciates more than probably any of us that there are some people who are tremendously violent and who are probably not safe to be my neighbor or your neighbor. He understands that in a way that few other people could because having been in prison maximum security for 38 years, he has seen it all. He's now 75 years old and he lives on a cell block with people who are much younger than I am. Um, But he also understands in a way that few of us could that the criminal justice system and prisons as they exist today are mostly not making us safer and are mostly actually creating more violence, both inside prisons and when people come home to communities. And so he is hopeful, as I am, that the work I do as district attorney will help to reimagine and transform our country's approach to crime and punishment in ways that decrease our reliance on prisons and make us safer. Let's talk about how how he ended up there, because it really is the very beginning of your life, as I sort of mentioned, um, which is that you were 14 months old. Your parents dropped you off with a babysitter, and it was the last time you saw them as a child uh, uh, free, really. Can you, in your words, tell us what happened? That's right. So I, I don't remember this. Of course, I was only 14 right. months old. But what I understand happened is my parents left me at the babysitter, intended to pick me up at the end of the day, but uh, participated as really switch car drivers. They weren't at the scene of the armed robbery. They were about a mile away. And the people who did the robbery were part of the Black Liberation Army. They stole uh, $1.6 million from a Brinks truck, in the process killed one of the security guards, severely injured another one. 
and they made off with the money and transferred the money and the guns into the back of a U-Haul truck my parents were driving. You know, I'm not a parent, but I've been with babysitters <laughs> as a kid. I mean, what do you make of the fact that your parents dropped you off with the babysitter knowing that they were going off to do that? A lot. There's a lot to say about it. I mean, on the one hand, I, I was very, very angry for many years at them mm-hmm. for participating in such a horrific crime and for doing it in a way that so jeopardized my own well-being and safety. Um, I also felt, uh, as a child, a sense of stigma and shame as though it, it was somehow my fault. And this is a really common experience for children with incarcerated parents to, to feel that you know, th- they could have prevented the harm, that they should have warned their parents not to I would I would often say to my adoptive parents in in moments of you know emotional difficulty as a child I'd say things like if only I could have talked I would have warned them not to go or things like if 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 I'd been more lovable maybe they wouldn't have risked losing me feelings that as an adult with maturity and hindsight I know are irrational but which are really common among children whose parents commit crimes mm-hmm. And I was lucky, luckier than most children with parents who are in prison, to have a tremendously supportive network of, of family and friends. We should say, I mean, who you were adopted. So your parents were part of the Weather Underground, and you were adopted with by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who I believe had two older boys. So you had two sort of built-in brothers. I wonder how they dealt with that conversation, given that they had been, you know, part of this group with your parents. Uh, they knew them well, like... It, was it something that you knew your entire, like, do you remember a moment or was the, were they just very open about it from the get-go? They were always very open about it. All four of my parents were um, in ways that I think helped me process the, the stigma and the shame. I know a lot of families are not as open and honest with their children uh, about where the incarcerated parents are. For reasons that are understandable, they want to protect kids from that shame and stigma, but kids figure it out. Um, they, and it actually internalizes the, the shame. It makes people feel that there is something to be ashamed of. My family was very open, and they were very honest about the fact that my parents had done something wrong. I hadn't. What, did, what drew them to the Weather Underground? You know, I, I didn't live through that history. Um, I've studied it in, in the history books. Uh, the Have same you asked way. them that? Of course, and, and I've, I've had lots of conversations with them about it. And, you know, I think they came of age in an era when the civil rights movement, um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and... Uh, you know, all of the struggles around uh, ending segregation in the Deep South were, um, you know, really on the national consciousness. And then, of course, the war in Vietnam. And I believe that what was most influential for them was was both that process of watching the civil rights movement and the violence with which so many of the leaders of the civil rights movement were were met, um, as well as the war in Vietnam and, and the student movements against it. And then seeing the ways in which leaders of the Black Panther Party, for example, were targeted uh, you know, for example, uh, Fred Hampton and the way he was killed in his bed in Chicago while asleep next to his pregnant girlfriend. I think those um, kind of historic moments and trends were really radicalizing for my parents. So you mentioned that you were angry at times as a child. Um, I know that you, I, or I've read that you struggled with epilepsy and dyslexia. Is that I didn't have epilepsy. I had petit mal, which okay. is a childhood version of okay. epilepsy. Sometimes develops into epilepsy. I was really lucky in that my adoptive father, uh, Bill Ayers, who is often uh, associated with with his history in the Weather Underground, which predated my life. I knew him as a, a preschool teacher in the preschool that I went to uh, while he was working on his PhD, and I knew him 
uh, for most of my life as a professor of mm-hmm. education who focused on training people to become teachers. Um, that's a history of his which actually lasted much longer than his participation in the Weather Underground, but is less often reported today. Um, because of his expertise uh, around child development issues, he identified some of those challenges very early in ways that helped me get the support and the treatment I needed to overcome and prevent full-blown epilepsy. How do you think on the dyslexic, you were dyslexic, or are, I guess, as well? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I know that was uh, reported by the New York Times in 2002. I did have real difficulties in school. I don't know if I was diagnosed <laughs> you, They with diagnosed it. you with dyslexia. <laughs> All right, well, let's clear the record here. But yeah. it sounds like you struggled learning how to read. And, and, That's true. And, and I mean, and I think we should say, since not everybody knows, I mean, you went on to go to Yale for both undergrad. You were a Rhodes Scholar. You were a Yale Law graduate. I mean, you have had a very notwithstanding this latest victory, a remarkable career before that. Um, I don't know. Was there a moment for you where academia became more interesting that it was like, how, like, how do you go from struggling as a young child to, you know, one of the top universities? Well, and I think you also wrote an article called from fail to Yale. So maybe that's part of the answer. (laughs) Um, You know, I, uh, I did, I did really struggle when I was younger. I didn't fully learn to read till I was nine years old, way behind my classmates. I had a lot of extra support from academic tutors and, and from family uh, and from teachers along the way. And I'm, I'm tremendously grateful to all of those teachers I had early in life and all of the extra support that I had. Um, and people who you know really had faith in me and were willing to tolerate some temper tantrums and some outbursts and some, some misbehavior in school and give me those second and third chances. Um, it wasn't a moment. It wasn't a, a like flipping a switch. It was something that happened gradually. And you know, when I was in middle school, I still struggled with some of my behavior problems. I still like a lot of middle schoolers. Like a lot of middle schoolers. That's right. And I, I was doing really well in some classes. And I, you know, teachers saw the potential. In other classes, I did really poorly. By the time I was in high school, I was really determined and focused on going to a top college, on putting all of my energy into productive outlets, sports, Model United Nations, chess club. Um, and I actually graduated from high school in three years instead of four. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking to San Francisco's district attorney-elect, Chase Boudin, about his quite remarkable life story, honestly. Um, and there was a gap year. Yeah, well, and, and part of that remarkableness uh, is uh, <laughs> your 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 time in Venezuela. And you were down there, I think, as a, as a part of your Rhodes Scholarship, 2006. Hugo Chavez was there as the leader. And you'd written, you've written about him. Uh, and tell us, first of all, how did you end up in Venezuela and what were you doing for him or with him or as part of the government? So let me start by clarifying a, a common misperception. I never actually met Hugo Chavez, uh, and I never worked for his government, which is often misreported. We're, we're just cleaning up all the areas. Yeah, exactly. look at this. Exactly. Gosh, all these things we've <laughs> read in multiple places. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a story. It's actually kind of a, an amazing story. So I go to Oxford, and I do a master's degree in refugee studies. And then I take a gap year before I go back to finish my Rhodes Scholarship and ultimately did a second master's degree in public policy. And... I had studied abroad in Chile on a Rotary International Scholarship uh, as a junior in college from Yale. I had a lot of friends in Chile. And so during that gap year, I went back to Chile, and I backpacked from Chile all the way up to Venezuela, up the Andes, through Ecuador, and then I boated down the Amazon River through Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, Brazil. Isn't that what Che did? Um, he did do uh, on a motorcycle. He did on a motorcycle. <laughs> he did a slightly, yeah, slightly different itinerary, but yes. Um, and I actually read the John Lee Anderson Che biography while I was on a boat on the Amazon River, uh, which was a fun, fun way to pass the time. When I when I got to Venezuela, I didn't know anybody. I'd never been there before, and I had one 
uh, one friend, and this is a story I tell in a book I wrote uh, about 10 years ago, um, a travel memoir about my time in Latin America, but I've now been to every Spanish-speaking country. I speak Spanish. I speak Portuguese. Spent a tremendous amount of time over a 10-year period in Latin America, but I'd never been to Venezuela. When I got there, I got off a bus in downtown Caracas, and I only knew one person who was a journalist, a Chilean journalist who had moved to Venezuela with her Canadian husband. And I had dinner with them, and she was at the time working in a variety of capacities with the government. And she had done a, a, a book of interviews with President Chavez that had been published in Spanish. She didn't speak very good English. Her husband didn't speak very good Spanish, oddly. <laughs> That's uh, how marriage works, I think. They, they, yeah. they communicate in other ways. They, they, have good, they had very good communication. But uh, so, so she actually asked me to, to help out with interpreting and translating for him he was an economist, an award-winning economist and professor. And then she asked me to translate her book for an American press that wanted to publish it in English. And so I did a, a contract with the American publisher, and I did the translation from Spanish mm -hmm. to English of this book of interviews with President Chavez. But as part of that, I mean, you, you had written from Venezuela about what a, you know, what a good job Chavez was doing, in particular at reducing poverty. I mean, looking back now, a lot of time has gone by. He's no longer alive. Um, how, do you, how do you see that? time and particularly his his rule. So I was always critically supportive of the government and I was supportive of the poverty alleviation efforts and I was critical of the ways in which he was centralizing power. Um, so I think, you know, if you look at a report that the Washington DC based Center for Policy, CIPRA, uh, Center for Economic Policy Research put out in 2006 or 2007, they documented at the time what was the most remarkable decline in extreme poverty that they found anywhere in world history. Uh, the Chavez administration invested billions of dollars in oil revenue in poverty alleviation. And they did it in ways that, in hindsight, were obviously unsustainable, mm. that came along with tremendous amounts of political corruption and clientelism um, and undermining of some of the checks and balances that were critical to a functioning democracy. But they were dealing with a real crisis, a humanitarian crisis at the time. And it was exciting to see the ways in which they were trying to redistribute resources. I documented that. I worked as an interpreter for international conferences. Um, it's actually where I first met Danny Glover. He was at a conference down there, and I was his interpreter. <laughs> is that how you got the Bernie endorsement? <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the Bernie endorsement, I think, came through other channels, but it is how I got the Danny Glover endorsement in, uh, in this race as well. So, all right. So let's fast forward. Um, we could probably spend an hour talking about your time in South America and Hugo Chavez and relitigating that part of history. But you, you, you end up coming to San Francisco, and you became a public defender. Um, and I think that, I mean, for me, the first time you and I spoke, for example, is because you really really put yourself out there on pushing bail reform. You took a case um, to the what's now actually before the state Supreme Court around a man um, who, you know, the public defender's office felt had been unfairly kept behind bars. And you are, you know, we have a very strong public defender's office in San Francisco. You were, I would say, a star among that office. What what was the moment? Why did you decide to run for top prosecutor? I spent much of my life in various capacities advocating for criminal justice reform. I wrote my first letter advocating for policy change when I was 10 years old to a prison warden. And it's been something I've thought about and worked on in various capacities and, and as a researcher at Yale Law School in partnership with the Association of State Correctional Administrators, as a public defender in San Francisco, um, as a founding chair of the board of Civil Rights Corps, a nonprofit leading impact litigation across the country. And I've loved the work I've done as a public defender doing direct service for individual people. But I was increasingly frustrated with what I 
saw and experienced as systemic failures. Money bail is a classic example of those systemic systemic failures. It's a, it's a system for f- folks who aren't familiar with it that allows wealthy people to buy their freedom no matter how dangerous they are. While folks who are less dangerous and perhaps have weaker evidence against them but have less money in the bank languish behind bars simply because of their poverty. It undermines public safety. Or they plea out. Or Exactly. Or coerces guilty pleas. Exactly right. It, so it undermines the integrity of the justice system by coercing guilty pleas and favoring um, discriminatory wealth, uh, wealth-based outcomes, while also undermining public safety by allowing people who are dangerous but have access to resources to be back on the streets. So was there a particular case or a particular moment where you thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip teams here. I'm going to go <laughs> work for the, you know, I'm on the off- defense. I'm going to go work for the offense. I mean, how, w- what was that conversation either with others or in your head like? It was really a, a response to social movements that were happening across this country more than it was a particular case. I could tell you about lots of cases that shaped my views, and I'm happy to. But when I was in law school, I knew that I wanted to fight against mass incarceration. I knew that the way that this country relies on jails and prisons to solve social problems and addiction and public health crises is undermining public safety rather than enhancing it. But at that time, um, you know, 10 years ago and more, it was really the the public defenders and the civil rights litigators that were doing that work. Um, And prosecutors were and had been a part of the problem. Over the last five years, I watched with amazement and, and, and awe as people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Rachel Rollins in Boston and Kim Fox in Chicago and so many more across the country ran for district attorney and won with a platform focused on decarceration. And um, when I saw that movement and I saw that George Gascon had, had, had announced he was not going to run for election, I felt that San Francisco was at a crossroads, and I felt that the movement nationally, the criminal justice reform movement, was at a crossroads. Were we going to look back in five or ten years and see the work that those folks who I just mentioned achieved as the pinnacle of what this reform movement could accomplish? Or were we going to see that as a critical foundation and starting point for a much more wide-reaching and broad reform effort? We have had... George Gascon, who you mentioned, who was, I think, widely viewed as one of the most progressive DAs in in the state. He has backed a lot of the reforms that I think you have also supported. Um, What and and I think, you know, that there's a sense among folks in law enforcement that that he was too far to the left. And I think you're coming in probably even further in some ways and wanting to push things further. But can you just talk about like, what did he get wrong? Where where was he not going far enough? Was it that he supported the policy, but the change wasn't happening in the office. Um, what can you bring to this that's different? I think I can bring a few things. Um, you know, first of all, we have very different backgrounds. You know, and, and I think background is relevant to the perspective that you bring to making difficult decisions every day as, 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 as a department head. Um, you know, George came from a law enforcement background. He was a police, police chief. Right, yeah. he was a police chief in San Francisco and in other places prior to becoming district attorney. He didn't have a background as a litigator. And so what could have and hopefully would have been one of his strengths in terms of the relationship with the police ultimately didn't, didn't work out that way for reasons we don't, again, need to relitigate here. Uh, but we know that the police ended up not working well with his office and in some ways undermining him. Um, And George didn't have the experience of litigating cases, of trying cases in San Francisco or other places. I've done more than two dozen jury trials in San Francisco's Hall of Justice. I spent most of my legal career in San Francisco's criminal courts working with all of the actors, with the judges and the juries, with the prosecutors and the defense teams, with the people who are accused of crimes 
and the communities that are impacted by it. And I hope that that experience, as well as the perspective I bring as a child with incarcerated parents, will allow me to navigate some of the obstacles uh, in ways that are different and more successful than George did. We know you're getting married this week, uh, or may have already. I know you're being a little hush-hush about the date, which is fine. what have you said to the mayor in terms of, like, when do you want to take office? Because there's if this interim situation, there's some flexibility there. I want to take office on the date that George Gascon's term was scheduled to end on, which is uh, January 8th. And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. You know, there's a process in virtually every single, um, you know, transition for elected officials in this country from the president of the United States all the way down to the San Francisco district attorney, which allows for usually two months between the election, which is usually middle of November, and inauguration, which is usually uh, early January. And there's a reason for that process. It's because campaign teams need time to wind down and recover. There's work that has to get done. There's legal compliance issues. There's hires to be made. Exactly. There's yeah, the transition. <laughs> staff to build. A honeymoon. Oh, sure, in my case, <laughs> luckily and happily. Um, but, but you know, all of that is work that has to get done in order both to comply with, with, with ethical obligations and legal requirements, but also to be able to hit the ground running on day one. I, you know, I ran an ambitious campaign. We made a lot of really specific promises to voters. And I'm humbled that voters chose in the majority to vote for me. Um, And I think it's essential that when I take office, I begin the difficult work of fulfilling those promises. And I want to be able to do it um, on day one. I couldn't do that if I took the job today. I just couldn't do it. There's too much other work to do to wind down the campaign, to recover from the tremendous effort that my team and I, you know, exerted over the last year in the campaign, and to build the transition team that's going to be able to implement the policies voters elected me to implement. All right. We will have to leave it there. Chase Abudin, congratulations on both your win and your upcoming nuptials. Mazel tov. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you, and I look forward to speaking soon. And that is it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Jim Bennett and Rob Spate. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Whoever you're listening, please don't forget to subscribe to The Breakdown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your audio. And while you're there, leave us a rating, a review. Tell us if you like us, what we could do better. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me 
supporting the programs they love, while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.